Welcome to the CrackCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Crack Institute for International Peace Studies. In today's episode, we're discussing the escalating tensions between the United States and Iran following the September 14th drone strikes on Saudi Aramco oil processing facilities. George Lopez, the Reverend Theodore Hesburgh Professor Emeritus of Peace Studies, sits down to talk with Susan Page, visiting professor of the practice at the Keough School of Global Affairs, Ibrahim Musa, professor of Islamic Studies, and David Courtright, Kroc Institute Director of Policy Studies and the Peace Accords Matrix Project. Hello and welcome to the CrocCast. I'm George Lopez, the Hesburgh Professor Emeritus of Peace Studies here at the Kroc Institute of International Peace Studies. Those of you watching the news will know that tensions between the U.S. and Iran have been long simmering, but have also escalated in recent weeks following a September 4th drone attack on the state-owned Saudi Aramco oil processing facilities in Abqaiq and Kurios, Saudi Arabia. The U.S. and Saudi Arabia have declared that Iran was behind the attack, with France, Germany, and the United Kingdom now following suit and issuing a joint statement that Iran bears responsibility for the attack. To date, Iran has denied any involvement in this attack. In one of the latest moves, the U.S. has announced a new round of sanctions targeting the Iranian National Bank. To discuss this developing situation, I'm joined today by a panel of experts from across the University of Notre Dame. Susan Page is a visiting professor of the practice at the Keough School of Global Affairs. She is a former U.S. ambassador and is an expert in diplomacy, democracy, and peace processes and negotiations. Susan, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much, George. Ibrahim Musa is professor of Islamic studies and primary investigator for the university's Madrasa Discourses Project. Ibrahim, nice to have you. Uh, thank you, George. Thanks for having me. David Courtright is director of policy studies and the Peace Accords Matrix Project at the Kroc Institute. Welcome, David. Thank you, George. And thanks to all of you for joining for this important conversation. Susan, may I begin with you? Where are we now in this dispute? And uh, where, if you had the ear of President Trump, where would you advise we should be going? Well, right now, I would say that since the United States pulled out from the uh, Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, last year, the U.S. has ratcheted up, up sanctions on Iran beginning in uh, last year in November. And following six months of slow ramping up of sanctions, as you just mentioned, has now increased the pressure under what they call a maximum pressure campaign. The idea, I believe, from the U.S. administration's perspective is to bring Iran back to the table to, to discuss and decide upon a better deal from the U.S.'s perspective to stop them from enriching uh, and enhancing nuclear weapons. Where I believe we are right now, though, is that although Iran was very patient for the first six months of the sanctions, now with the UK, France and Germany calling Iran out uh, for what they have been doing by enhancing some of the uh, nuclear, nuclear enhancements 
that go beyond what the deal called for, even though those countries are still part of the JCPOA. They have now claimed that Iran is in violation of UN Security Council Resolution 2331, which actually enshrined the JCPOA into international law. So while it looks like Iran is now fighting back through the uh, strikes against uh, Aramco, it is unclear whether or not the U.S. will take the bait. I hope that we don't, uh, that we continue with either the maximum pressure campaign or something else because we do not want to go to war with Iran and get the region engaged in some sort of a full-scale war. I would only add one last thing, which is that it's unclear how much more the Iranians would be able to give in any sort of new deal that would be negotiated when the deal that they negotiated with so many countries was not respected by one of the major superpowers, the United States. So one has to look at why they would be even willing to return to the negotiating table for what end. Let me follow up with what uh, Susan talked about, and that is not the whole question that she hopes that there will not be a military scenario, there will not be military strikes. Let's just plot that scenario, right? What is that scenario going to look at? So we're going to strike strategic positions in Iran, strike at, as the U.S. in consultation with the Israelis for a long time have been talking about providing the Israelis or the, uh, with certain kind of missiles that can go into those bunker, bunker buster ones that can destroy Iran's military uh, nuclear armaments, or the U.S. do it itself. The consequences of those can be grave, the nuclear fallout of that, or the damage that it can do. And yes, indeed, Iran may not be able to strike back, but it's going to strike back at places in the Middle East where the U.S. has strategic interests. Mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia is just one. They just gave us a foretaste of that and what they can do. Just as Saudi Arabia was trying to market Aramco as this big you know, IPO that they were going to launch, they showed how vulnerable Saudi Arabia is economically despite all the military hardware. We have, as the United States, we have interest in, in a stable Iraq. As the United States, we have an interest in a stable Afghanistan. As the United States, we want, don't want to see Syria go further de-escalate. So I think any kind of thing that we're going to do is it going to be surgical strikes will have consequences. The Iranians play the long game. And the biggest beneficiaries of previous U.S. military interventions in the region has only been Iran. Iran has been able to back itself up in, into Lebanon, into Syria, into Yemen, where Saudi Arabia started the fight, and that was a proxy fight from the get-go. So with the result that U.S. interests in the region are already under lockdown by a variety of Iranian military mechanisms, unconventional military mechanisms. And I think that is a fight that we want to avoid. And what is the answer to that? De-escalation. And maybe we can talk about what does de-escalation look like. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I mean, this is a very dangerous game we're playing. An attack against Iran will provoke them to respond, and it could escalate, and it's a, we, we can't win in that scenario. Let's be clear also what this crisis is about and where it began. The United States has started this problem. We had this nuclear agreement. It was negotiated extensively over years. It was the most extensive 
a negotiated non-proliferation agreement. The Iranians got rid of all of their enriched uranium, shut down their production reactors, uh, cut back two-thirds of their enrichment capacity, and agreed to the most extensive on-site inspection that we've seen. Uh, and they were complying fully. The International Atomic Energy Agency inspectors did 12 reports, maybe 13, before the U.S. shut it down, unilaterally withdrawing from this agreement. So this is a crisis we created. And the solution, I think, is exactly what you say, de-escalate. And maximum pressure has failed and will only lead to these, or could lead to these uh, very risky military scenarios. I think we need to get back to the bargaining table. And the key for doing that is not ramping up the pressure, but offering to ease some of the pressure. And this is, if we look at the history of the negotiation, how did the JCPOA come about? It went on for quite a while. But it was the offer of the U.S. and its allies to lift sanctions if Iran actually cooperated and agreed to inspections and all these terms. And to everyone's pleasant surprise, they actually did agree. We lifted the sanctions. And it's not that Iran became a saintly state. It still has its interests. But the at least the nuclear threat was significantly diminished. That's what we were aiming for. And so I think we need to look at some gesture it could even be just a modest promise to reduce some pressures if they could go back to the bargaining table. Maybe get some additional restrictions from the Iranians, maybe on their missile programs or whatever. But a negotiating scenario is, to me, the only real option that allows us to get back to what we had originally and then address some of the other dangers and hopefully set a, a pathway for uh, beginning to interact with Iran on a more normal basis. David, de-escalation involves face-saving devices on both sides. What could we think of as a face-saving device? For me, the first thing that comes to mind is that the U.S. needs a face-saving device. President Trump needs a face-saving device. Iran needs a face-saving device. I think the one thing that Iranians will insist upon is come back, snap back the JCPOA, but we don't see that as a terminus, but we see that as a beginning point of a conversation. The Europeans, and especially Macron, tried at the G7 to get the foreign minister there. There was some, I'm sure there were back-channel uh, conversation going on there. And that will also, and the U.S. could could possibly ask Iran to do something what you just mentioned. Okay, can you reduce your missile, you know, operation to testing that you're doing? That will, that will be a, a, a short-term thing that Iran can give. And from what I've seen is that the noises from the Iranian side, from the Ayatollah, the chief, the the President Rouhani and the Prime Minister, they've all been making a singular noise in unison. And that is, we're happy to talk. But they're also putting some conditions because now they're not trusting at least one partner, that is the United States, that can change his mind. But they were very keen over the weekend, they were very keen to hear that President Trump said that if he has a new agreement, he will pass, put it through Congress. And I think Jawad Zarif was very excited about that. So that's at least one set of issues that I can think as a face-saving device. I think if I if I could add, I think Ibrahim is right that both sides need some sort of a face-saving measure. And David's correct as well that this started with the United States. We had a very detailed, difficult-to-reach agreement that the United States decided unilaterally to back out from. Now, with the lack of trust between the U.S. and, of course, Iran, it seems to me that one way is, although President Macron did try to have that conversation between Trump and the Iran's foreign minister, I think it's now going to be up to some of our foreign partners to try to 
continue to put the pressure on the United States to go back to at least some of the principles that were already a hard-won fight through the JCPOA. Now, what would be a face-saving measure for President Trump and the, the administration? I think that's harder to get at. As everyone has mentioned, the, Iran, the Iranians have said that they are willing to go back to the negotiating table with some conditions, including the relief of sanctions. The sanctions are not only biting Iran, they're also biting Iraq and other neighboring countries. And we're not thinking about the ramifications that these so-called maximum pressure sanctions are having in the region. So I think if we could have some sort of, okay, let's lift some of the sanctions and then have the conversations. But I think the Europeans are going to really have to step up because it's it's not up to them, but I think they're going to have to be some sort of a provider of guarantees to the Iranians that they won't let it go as far as as where it, it is now, as in one side just unilaterally pulls out of an agreement negotiated with a number of partners. Let me push you, good colleagues, on this, because I think most negotiators would understand the face-saving dynamic. Susan's offered to go beyond face-saving and see some real details on the table and, and real concessions. David gave us earlier the explanation of, of what is the ultimate cause of this unraveling or this tension point. But there are in in U.S. politics a large number of people on the other side who say, in fact, we have squozened the Iranians to a point where, in fact, their erratic behavior is even more manifest than before. They do not respond to uh, small concessions or or symbolic actions or the call for meeting, whether one-on-one in the U.N., or to come back to the table. And uh, therefore, the hawks suggest that we should be even stronger militarily. And while any of us might reject that out of hand, it's still a very, very strong sentiment among some in the conservative media and certainly in think tanks and, and in many of the people that surround and support the president in Congress. So let me ask the question, what does have to happen to turn back the dial within U.S. domestic politics? While we might be aiming at symbolic actions to persuade the Iranians, we might be serious. What can create a a more bipartisan or at least unified view that a way forward, concessions, symbolic actions or meetings are worth taking the risk, given that a big power like the United States has now been challenged? Well, I think one thing about American public opinion, from my understanding, is there's no support for military action, or very little. Uh, There's a lot of public fear and you know, just having gone through this experience with Iraq and Afghanistan, we don't want any more wars in the Middle East. I think that's a very widely shared view in the American public and within the Republican and Democratic parties. So the more we can point that this continuous pressure and direction is aiming us toward that kind of a uh, potential scenario. Granted, there are uh, many uh, in both parties and in the public who are blaming uh, Iran for many of the problems in the region. I think that's overstated, but I think Trump is a president who can get away with stuff that no one else could have in the past. And, and he could make a gesture. And it doesn't have to be to lift sanctions. There's, a, you know, the scenario of suspension, you know, an offer to suspend some of the sanctions. We've got dozens and dozens of sanctions. You know, there's that Congressional Research Service report that comes out periodically on sanctions against Iran. It's now 90-some pages, <laughs> page after page of measures that we have. So pick a few of them, suspend them, and come to the table with some kind of an offer. It may be controversial 
to some. But really, that, that hardline approach that was associated with John Bolton and others, that, that's there. But I think there's also a lot of people on both sides of the aisle that are looking for a solution that begins to back us away from the precipice of possible military action. So I think you could get away with it. And certainly uh, the example of having put in place heavy tariffs against other countries like China and then uh, suspending them, as the president has done, might be able to play into this scenario, David, which which makes some sense. Uh, it's also the case that uh, the, the Iranian bank sanctions are being critiqued uh, internationally because that's the only flow-through point for the financing of humanitarian goods. And for some, even people who believe that the United States should stay strong, the crossing the line of uh, preventing humanitarian goods getting into Iran is uh, is a serious measure. So we might be able to come back from that precipice. Yeah, I, I think David's right. I mean, suspension is is one, I think, very viable prospect. I would only say that we have to figure out ways to have the administration accept some sort of a suspension. And I'm not sure what the motivation at this point for the administration to do that would be. Obviously, it seems very clear to me that Trump does not want to go to war um, with Iran for all the reasons that we've all said, but I'm not sure he wants to negotiate either. And so what kinds of incentives can we think of to help him go against perhaps those hawks in his own administration and maybe even his own thoughts and perspectives. And similarly, we have to think about what would that mean for the Iranians? I mean, the president of Iran took enormous risks to make this deal happen, convincing the Supreme Ayatollah and others to go along with this. He did. They did. They signed it. And they didn't... They got a slap in the face. Exactly. So we have to come up with something on both sides. And I think even if we could get, even if someone could convince the administration to suspend sanctions, it's not lifting them, it's just temporary halt until something else happens, how do we actually get the Iranians back to the table to renegotiate something that was already difficult in the first place, and that took, as, as George just mentioned, it took several years and really very painstaking uh, negotiations. So it seems clear that the Iranian strategy right now is also costing them a lot of money. So if we can demonstrate to them that this is also not going to be beneficial to them in the, in the short or long run, that might help them get to the table. But it can't be done in a way that's just sort of in their face telling them this is a bad, a bad idea. I think what can help the negotiations or the conditions for negotiations and talks would be, and also uh, is to assure the Iranians that our goal is not regime change, right? And for the hawks within the country, we need to say, we've tried regime change several times and look at what spectacular cost it was in both American blood and treasure. Okay, and Iraq is not stable. I mean, a army of ISIS came in there and they w took one fifth of the country. So the, the whole region is extremely volatile, unstable. You don't want to add to that instability. 
And so I think we need to repeat through the media and the media need to play, play, take a much more proactive position rather than buying the State Department and the White House's line is to say, look at what we have done until now. We have not been successful. We don't understand the region. We don't understand the dynamics of the region. And unfortunately, Saudi Arabia, our very cl our closest ally, has also been mouthing the same thing as regime change or cutting the neck of the snake. So the key issue, even to get there, I think Israel is out of the equation. Israel was one of the major, and Netanyahu in particular, was the major opponent to the JCPOA. I don't know when he, if he's out of the equation or not. That is unpredictable. But I think there's some quiet on that side. But I think the key issue would be how do we tell Saudi Arabia that it's in your best interest to start talks with Iran? And I think Iran, sanctions hurt Iran. But for the last 40 years, in Iran has been very adept of managing sanctions. So sanctions hurt, but it's not going to deplete and defeat Iran. Iran has shown a great deal of resilience in this regard. So I think we need to learn the lessons of that regime change doesn't work. And lastly, we need to tell ourselves that our intervention and military interventions are not a force for stabilization in the Middle East. Mm -hmm but rather the opposite. If we are not going to learn any lessons, then we're going to have very victories. But I think the outcomes are going to be more damage and American power and prestige is going to be further eroded. And I think that's something that, that, that we need to think about if we value the importance of, of what our country can do. But if, if, we, if we were to go in that, in that direction, I think we could learn a lesson from Syria where the Obama administration really sort of drew the red line and then didn't was not able to follow through with it, was not able, didn't, whatever. That can be a – because the the Trump administration came in and said, okay, we're going to move away from this regime change agenda. So if we could pull for the administration the lessons that we learned from the middle to end of the Obama administration with regard to Syria and then what the Trump administration has done – that might be one way to say, but you see, you you did it here. And of course, the crisis in Syria, the war is not over, but at least the the language has changed and it has made things somewhat better. Not better, but somewhat better. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can take that as an example and say, we need to follow more along that type of path with a specific example of where the outcome was more positive than it had been. Yeah. If I might just follow up on that, I, I agree with that. I mean, Trump has positioned himself politically as being opposed to these wars, uh, and we can maybe play to that uh, in that uh, the war is not just the shooting, but it's also the economic pressures and all which could lead to that. So that's, that's one approach. And the other is in terms of what kinds of gestures, what kind of suspensions of sanctions we might consider. I think George's point about the humanitarian impacts of these measures is very important. These are aimed at the top political elites, but it's not hurting them. Uh, it's hurting the average working people, where you have lots of evidence about high rates of inflation, lower family incomes, some medicines and re medical uh, supplies and others are, are not able to be purchased now because of the financial measures. So we could find ways of suspending some of the measures that might have this harmful humanitarian impact. So he could pitch it as a sort of a, a gesture to the Iranian people. And one other point I would just add to what Ibrahim is saying about how the policy has uh, some self-destructive consequences for the United States. 
when sanctions are imposed uh, on Iran like this, what happens is the people who benefit most are the criminal elements and the Revolutionary Guard. So they've now taken over, the Revolutionary Guard have taken over a lot of the marketing of oil through all these um, secondary channels, and, and that further empowers the most hardline groups in Iran. If, if anybody over, over there was responsible for these missile and attacks on Saudi Arabia, it was probably them. They're the, the main supplier of these kinds of goods. So we're, our policy is actually having this unintended counterproductive effect of empowering the bad guys, so to speak, and harming the innocent civilians. I wonder if I might uh, throw some cold water on all of this. <laughs> I'm not hearing enough, because I don't think people in the administration would hear enough from your good advice about what the Iranians are giving up here. And I wonder if there's a way in which we could talk about what expectations could we have about Iranian behavior, which didn't necessarily call for large amounts of uh, capitulation on their part, but could indicate being a partner of goodwill? Could we call for a ceasefire in the Gulf for 90 days, such that the kind of attacks that we saw on Aramco, wherever they might have originated, might uh, might not occur again, and, and there'd be a normalization and a certain de-escalation. Might there be a role, Susan mentioned the importance of Resolution 2131, is there a way in which the, the Secretary General could assert himself at this critical time of the General Assembly in saying that a special UN commission could come in and try to help with uh, some fact-finding and other things? Right now, we're seeing a tension between U.S. allies and the U.S. and Iran and kind of a triangulated thing. And could outsiders be more helpful in this? What's your reaction to that, of demanding some more and specifics from Iran? I think the one quid pro quo could be that Iran suspends arming the Houthis yeah, with, with, exactly. with uh, military uh, equipment, high-level military equipment like the missiles. By all indications, it seems that Iran enabled the Houthis or someone to do that. The quid pro quo for that would be that Saudi Arabia would allow for humanitarian aid to come into, Ira- into, in, into mm-hmm. Yemen, going on to your point that there'd be a kind of a ceasefire in the Gulf. Uh, furthermore, that shipping return to, new, uh, to normalization of oil shipping, Iran will not intervene in, uh, in, in, in those activities. And the other measure could be that in response to that, there could also be you know, lifting off uh, some sanctions. Those are the things that come to mind. But I think, and also, I think all parties need to you know, lower the rhetoric of war and calling each other names and demonization, which can only result in a mishap and accidental you know, uh, occurrence of war. I I would add, I think Ibrahim is actually spot on, especially uh, stopping arming the Houthi rebels. So I think that's one aspect. The other thing I would would add, though, is if we could get Iran to go back to the original – terms of the JCPOA, which obviously they were following until we pulled out, and they followed for six months after the initial sanctions were placed upon them. I think that would demonstrate some goodwill that even if we are no longer going to be party to this this agreement, if they could go back to the following of uh, Security Council Resolution 2331 with the terms, stop the enrichment, stop, you know, return to the the numbers that they had agreed to, I think that would be at least some 
some comfort to those who are starting to be very concerned about this erratic behavior by by Iran. So something that would also be something that we could give them, which is, but they signed up to this deal, let's say in good faith, whether they did or didn't, but they were abiding by it. So how can we, even as this administration stays out of the deal, how can we at least say, but we support what they signed up to. So you mean uh, ask them to slow down the nuclear reactors because they began to accelerate exactly. those, those nuclear reactors, ask them to step it back exactly. and bring to it go back, back to back JCPOA to the, that's levels, right. that's whatever right. that was. Exactly. Okay? So that would be one way of getting them to the table. Yes. And, and, and yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. No, and I think that that's very good. And it could be on a time frame. And again, the suspension could be six months or something. And uh, immediately... You know, go back to the uh, lower levels of enrichment and the other steps to get back to the, the terms of the accord, while we at the same time ease up on some of the pressures on the humanitarian side with some of the sanctions. This could, I think, create an atmosphere that would allow for some conversations to take place. I mean, uh, Trump's style is to talk directly to presidents and prime ministers, and, but I would hope that there's some kind of track two processes underway as well at the technical level that are so necessary for these kinds of processes. Ultimately, it all could benefit the security of the region if it could lead to some kind of an ongoing process where you have discussions about, first, the terms of the getting back to JCOPA, JCPOA, and then putting possibly other issues on the tables around ceasefires in the region, normal normalization of commerce, uh, and then possibly some of the other tougher issues around their missile programs and the like. And the maritime, I would just add that as, as the, 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 the maritime. Yeah. yeah, that's important. One of, one of the things, George, is also the it kind of education of the American public. So generally, for instance, the Trump administration and others and the and the right and the hawks have made it racist in a successful campaign by saying that we paid Iran billions. We did not pay Iran billions. Iran took back the money that we held for 30-odd years right. in our banks, plus the interest, whatever that was. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was the deal. They wanted their money back. They were going to do this trade and, and comply and so on. Second thing is, is that we need to understand that we have painted Iran into a corner, that it becomes a bad actor. And it does everything, uh, desperate measures to save itself. So I thought, for instance, this is extremely bold on Iran's part, but also very they must be sure on a whole variety of other things that they could take on Saudi Arabia's you know, oil depots in the way that they did. And they possibly had calculated that if there's going to be a strike, this is what we can absorb. And also the fact that our collective missile defense systems did not pick it up. Right. I mean, maybe right. they didn't actually calculate that it would be a successful strike. Drone strike. Exactly. And also, and it flies, you know, you know, low-flying stuff. That's it's like right. the equivalent of military box cutters, right? I mean, But yeah. given, what, $75 billion of Saudi purchases of American defense systems over the last couple of years? That's that, scary. That's scary. And it's also maybe a calculation. Uh, of course, these things won't get through, but we will have made our point. Right. Oh, but now, now that they have yes. uh, gotten through and the effects are very clear to be seen on Saudi Arabia and their oil production and output. But the other thing that Ibrahim mentioned, which I think is really critical, is the role of public diplomacy. And this is where I think he's right. We need to help the administration, maybe not we, us, but to get 
out the real word, and Iran has to do that, and supporters of Iran have to do that about what Iran has either lost or what it, quote, gained in what we supposedly paid them, this, the truth-telling, the other end of the story. And it's very difficult to do that when we basically have, we have no representation in the country. So, you know, if we could find some other people to help get that message out and pass that message strongly to the Iranians that they need to do some of this public diplomacy, they need to share their story. Yes, it's going to be countered because that's what that's how it works, but they need to at least start and find some other allies who can help them do that. I'd like to follow up on that because I think it's a really critical issue. We we demonize the Iranians so much. You know, they are like the devil incarnate. And how many Americans have ever been there or know anything about the country? I had a chance to go there for a couple of weeks about eight years ago or so. And I was amazed at how much the people actually like Americans. Many of them still speak English, probably back from the days when we were allied with their government. But And it's such a great country and rich history and culture. And um, now, obviously, their theocratic political system is uh, risky and, and not something we would ever accept in this country. But Having some ability to understand people-to-people uh, -people diplomacy is what's needed. We ought to be having more delegations going over there. I remember for a while there were some of the leaders of the U.S. Catholic Conference of Bishops made it their uh, business to go over there and talk to their religious leaders, and uh, the Mennonite Church and some others have done that. But let's first of all get to know these people, find out what makes them tick. You know, they're, as I say, they have this theocratic system, but they also have something of a shadow of democracy. They, they do have elections. It's a fairly open society in a lot of respects. There's a very significant movement for reform among the urban populations, uh, the young people. So uh, let's understand the place, start to begin to build relationships, and understand that no matter what we do, Iran will still be there. It's a powerful state for that part of the world, uh, and uh, we have to get along with them somehow. And we have to remember, too, that we recognize plenty of theocratic governments around the world. <laughs> and Saudi Arabia. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, this is not something that is, is unheard of. And we should also note the fact that these people-to-people -people diplomacy has been stopped largely by our own government, who does not want this to, to continue. So if we can try to encourage them to do more of the people-to-people -people diplomacy, cultural diplomacy, I mean, as you say, it's a very rich, dynamic Persian culture, and we have a lot to learn from them just as they do from us. Let me see. This is a marvelous dialogue. I think we've given our, our listeners a number of step-by-step uh, -step approaches one of the big foreign policy questions is always, what's the end game? You know, yesterday at the uh, Asia Society, I gather, Brian Hook, the U.S. Special Representative for Dealing with Iran, painted a 30-year picture of a regime that uh, has just been interested in revolutionary behavior and a variety of other destabilizing activities. That doesn't strike me as a, a place that ends in other than replacing the regime. And, and even if we take that as the party line, if we're able to de-escalate using some of the steps that you all have mentioned, is that just a, a small valley yet anticipating the next upward climb to a new escalation? Or is there a, a reasonable end game within the next two to five years for which the U.S. could aim with our relationship with Iran? I think we, we have to prepare ourselves to live in a world in which there are going to be different kinds of political regimes. 
And all these regimes cannot be the ones that we wish them to be. And we have to learn how to live with those various ones. I mean, of course, there are international ways of measuring that and who crosses the line. I think in the case of Iran, Iran would look for uh, a situation in which they can be become acceptable actors in the world uh, community and also in the region. I think it costs them a lot in terms of their own growth and development. They have a very active public who is educated and wants to see better days. And they know that these kinds of activities are uh, result in repression and the lack of development and growth. And furthermore, this Iranian administration of Rouhani, including Supreme Leader and others, they are fully aware about the unease in their public, and they're fully aware that they cannot deal with a restless public, I mean. And so they, they want to make sure that they give their people something. Otherwise, they would not have gone in for the JCPOA, which would have been, I mean, they had to swallow several bitter pills, right, to go in there, because at first they were saying, we have a right to nuclear, nuclear power. And uh, despite the fact, and we have not stopped other actors in the region from having nuclear power, Pakistan and India, and unofficially Israel and so on. And so, but we put them, so they put themselves out there and they got zero. So what is the end game? I think the end game, uh, George, it would be, we have to find a way in which Iran joins the, the world com international community on the terms that, are, that every other country follows without us telling them what is good for them and what is bad for them. They understand what the international rules of the game are. And that will also decrease Iran's footprint in the region because all extended its footprint precisely because it thought of his national security. And its interests. I mean, does it want to be an imperial power, possibly a regional power it is? It sees Israel as a lethal threat. Israel sees it as a lethal threat. But, you know, we didn't realize how intimately connected Iraq was with Iran mm -hmm. when we went in there in 2003. We also discovered afterwards that they have an Ayatollah <laughs> and that we have to talk to. And we discovered that they're also interested in Sharia. Right? We never thought that. We thought we'd be bringing them Jefferson's Constitution. Right? <laughs> so it doesn't work like that. And therefore, we, the end game is a couple of things. One is we have to educate our public and make people understand that we are living in a world of diversity and we're going to respect that diversity. And thirdly, give other people the opportunity to partake in the goods of peace in the ways that we want. And we don't want to be threatened and they want to be threatened and that should be the end game. And I think one way to accelerate that would be to either occasion a handshake with the president, with President Trump and Rouhani somewhere in, in New York, or at least make a promise to meet somewhere in France or somewhere uh, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a point from now to start those conversations. Yeah, I, I think also we have to recognize that all of this peacemaking, whatever we want to call it, takes time. And it's an investment, not just in the outcome, which we hope will be peace, but in gaining trust between the parties. And as you say, Ibrahim, I mean, what did Iran get after swallowing all of these bitter pills? They even continued to follow the deal after the United States pulled out, waiting, watching, and hoping even that the Europeans who, who did not pull out would step up and either push the administration to get back in or, or something or to at least ease the sanctions on them 
from not being able to follow through with their own commitments under the JCPOA. So I think the the long-term goal is exactly as you say. In the short term, we have to work at building up that, that trust again. It was already fraught, but they managed to swallow the pill, as did the then Obama administration, because they worked at it. These, again, this was a long time coming. So I think we have to be willing to put in the time and investment in getting to know people, to understand their position, their what is their calculation, what is their in their interests, so we can at least temporarily put ourselves in their shoes and then figure out a way that we can mutually go forward. Yeah, I agree with that. That's a good approach. And they, I, I'm sure, want a deal. And even if you look at, for example, they've started to breach the limits of the JCPOA, but only in a very limited way, a little bit more enrichment. They've not tried to get back all that fuel that they shipped off. They say they're going to restart the production reactors, but that's a long-term process. And uh, so they've, you know, they're, they're retaliating, as they see it diplomatically, but they haven't taken really uh, aggressive steps yet. There's a danger the longer we go, go in this, this uh, confrontational approach, the more it strengthens these Revolutionary Guard forces, uh, whereas Rouhani and some of his allies are more of the moderates and more pragmatists, uh, and they recognize the need to deal with this restive population, a population that wants more economic benefits and that wants more freedom. Uh, so uh, I think we should be thinking about how do we work with that other Iran, you know, the people themselves, especially, as I say, the urban and reform-minded populations, find ways to appeal to them and to uh, minimize the benefits that would flow to the Revolutionary Guard and the hardliners. That's a a long-term process, uh, but it's one where we try to play towards uh, shifting as much as we can the dynamics within Iran itself and holding, you know, for a while it can be a deterrence kind of posture, um, make sure they don't uh, engage in aggressive actions or around the region. Uh, but uh, I think we can manage that kind of process, and a handshake would be a good way to start it. And then with some of the uh, gestures toward restraint that we talked about, that hopefully could uh, induce further gestures on their part. I think uh, just to add to what, the, what both of you had said, the public di- diplomacy, the various acts of uh, that we need to take uh, both in this country and abroad, I think this time around we should take the opportunity to arrive at a comprehensive deal, both for the United States and its allies and for Iran. If there's a win-win solution to this, we can solve a really major problem because Iran can become a force for stabilization. Now, one of the things we just didn't mention, and maybe that's a, a next conversation at another time, is that there's all, also been, you know, both Iran and Saudi Arabia has been fomenting a sectarian war that has now, you know, gone into all countries. And as we know that Egypt has shown signs of restlessness in the last couple of days. So the region, again, is looking very precarious. And I think that these measures that we would take, and if we can move towards a comprehensive deal, will possibly halt some of those negative forces in the region. I think that might be not only a good way for us to end this fine conversation, but also the the teaser for the next one. (laughs) So thanks to each of you for this uh, podcast and thank you to our audience for listening. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the CrocCast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. 
You can find all episodes of the Crotcast on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, TuneIn, Stitcher, and online at crock.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates and stories from the Croc Institute, follow us online at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.